great. You could have a seat. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. Thank you for being here and celebrating with us and joining us here in person or online. We're grateful to have you and to share with you and celebrate with you on such a special day and a, uh, another opportunity for us to... Uh, yeah, to celebrate his resurrection that is entirely our benefit. I want to say that uh, JR and Janny are with family and they're traveling, they're away this weekend, but they greet you this morning and wish you a happy Easter as well. And uh, we're grateful for them and grateful to uh, let them spend Easter with JR's sister and her family as well. And I uh, look forward to them being back this week. Let me begin this morning by saying just a couple of things. One, I want us to look at today on Easter Sunday, one of the greatest messages ever shared. One of the greatest messages ever shared. I'm not sharing the greatest message. I want us to look at and take a look at the, one of the greatest messages ever shared. That happens in Acts chapter 2. You can turn there this morning with me if you would like to. In Acts chapter 2, but let me also say this, there's a lot happening in our world today. There's a lot going on on planet earth happening today in this very season, in these very days. And I want to say this, it's not what it seems. There was a lot happening 2,000 years ago. When Peter preaches this message and he shares one of the greatest messages ever told. There's a lot happening on planet earth. And a significant point to the message is that it's not what it seems. It's not what it seems. It's one of the greatest messages shared of all time, of any time, of any day or time period on planet earth. It's given by Peter and it's 50 days after the crucifixion. It's 10 days after Jesus' ascension that Peter is standing up. It's the same Peter who denied Christ three times in his day of punishment and preparation for execution. Peter denies him, and yet Scripture says Peter takes a stand. Peter stands up. It's 50 days after that time period. It's 50 days later. And anyone who knew who Jesus was would have known that he was crucified. That he bore a shameful death. There was hardly anybody in Jerusalem that didn't know what happened, whether Jesus was or not. They had heard about what had happened. And they were continuing to hear all sorts of things. There's rumors that are circulating. Rumors about what did happen. What was happening. Rumors about the disciples and how they're running and how they're fearful. There's rumors that there's a missing body, that someone's stolen and that they're looking out for who's stolen the body. There's rumors and that the disciples are on the run and they're in the hiding somewhere and they need to be turned up and rotted out. There's a campaign going on and it's a campaign around this missing body. It's a campaign that involves money. It's a campaign to thwart what had happened. 
And I just want to say it's not what it seems. There's a lot happening on planet earth at that time. There's a lot happening today. And it's not what it seems. That's what we're looking at today. On the day of Pentecost, Peter's there in Jerusalem with the others to bring one of the greatest messages ever shared. It says at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, they were all together. They were all gathered together in one place. When suddenly a violent sound came rushing. How many of you heard those C-130s touching down a week ago here at our airport and taking back off in that rumble over top of this gateway center facility here as we're having a staff meeting, I think on that Tuesday, and those things are coming over top, and there's a loud rushing sound that they're comparing to maybe a a wind. Maybe it's like a jet over the city. But it also says in Scripture in Acts chapter 2, many others heard the sound, and they gathered together. I'm presumably thinking that maybe they started to gather where the sound was coming from. And in scripture, there's a great miraculous experience that's happening at the house that the disciples are gathered in. Something miraculously is happening. Maybe this sound is coming from that spot because again, it says that people from the city gathered around the house and Peter and the others find themselves on the rooftop after they've experienced something again that's miraculous, something like tongues of fire upon each one of them. And as people gathered from around the city, the city would have been full celebrating the Passover. And there are people from many nations who are gathered around. But as they gather and they come there to that place, in that place, they're hearing their native tongue and their native language. And what's being spoken or what's being shared is somehow miraculously echoing in their own hearts, in their first tongue, in their first language. Something miraculous with this violent sound. And it's not what it seems. The people gather and they're beginning to wonder what's going on? What is, what's happening? There's this mighty sound. There's this fire experience. There's this language experience. People are continuing to gather around and yet there's these guys up on top of a rooftop. What's going on? And rumors circulate there. They're They're drunk. They've had too much wine. And you and I know it's not what it seems. Peter is about to bring his message. But before Jesus was crucified, it wasn't what it seemed. Even before the crucifixion, it wasn't what it seemed. As was customary, Jesus had to appear before Pilate, who was the Roman governor at the time. And even to Pilate, it wasn't what it seemed. Pilate and his very wife declared, this man, Jesus, he's an innocent man. She says to him, have nothing to do with him. Have nothing to do with this innocent man. I've been tormented all day by dreams of this man. Have nothing to do with him. She declared he was innocent. Pilate standing before the crowds, before the crucifixion. On that good Friday, said, who do you want? Who do you want me to release? This was customary that coming into that weekend, he would be releasing somebody. And the two options are Barabbas, a murderous 
rioter, one who was in tyranny against the Roman Empire and the Roman government and was a terrorist and was executing and killing and, and uh, taking out Roman soldiers. Pilate says, that option or Jesus? But he could have just as well declared, because he knew it in his heart, the innocent man, Jesus. And the crowd said, give us Barabbas. What's going on here? What's going on here? The crowd's chanting, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Confused and perplexed, Pilate says, then the blood's on your hands. And ceremonially, he washes his hands and says, let it be upon you, not upon me. It's not what it seemed. It seemed that Jesus should have been released. And that Barabbas deserved what he had done on so many others. But they released the murderous insurrectionist, and he was set free. But Jesus gave his life up for you and I to be the resurrectionist. When a man who was guilty was released and set free, and the innocent man said, I'll give my life for you and for you and for you, it wasn't what it seemed, but Jesus stood up. It wasn't what it seemed. When Jesus entered the city a week earlier, when he came, they threw him a parade. A boisterous parade, nothing that he had coordinated, nothing that the disciples were behind, but the people drew praise because scripture said it would be so. Something rose up in them. The Roman Empire is going to be overthrown. This man's going to lead us. Maybe they were even chanting, it's not what it seems. Believing another thing. And Jesus went along with it. He endured the parade. He went through it, but perhaps some of those very people at that parade were some of the people chanting, give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus in a week's time. They were totally different. Certainly the disciples were a part of the parade and certainly they were most likely hearing Pilate's judgment over Jesus. And many of them feared for their own lives, it says, and they, they hid. They hid themselves. But now, 50 days later, Peter's about to take a stand. He's about to stand up on a rooftop in the house of a city where the crowds are gathered around and he's about to bring his greatest message he'll ever bring. Are you with me? I hope so. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. I think we have it for you on the screen as well. It says, after he's said many other things, Peter says this. This is where I want to pick up. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles Wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Jesus, excuse me, Peter is revisiting Jesus and the crucifixion and what happened 50 days earlier to prove and to show it's not what it seemed. He's saying, accredited by God to you by miracles, 
that you yourselves know. You yourselves know. Some of you witnessed what he would have done these days prior to his crucifixion. You yourselves witnessed miracles like we did. It's like saying, are you really going to argue with yourself? Who knows better than you of what you saw of Jesus? And Jesus did these miracles in front of everybody. He didn't hide it. He didn't do it to an exclusive club. It wasn't just at church on Sunday. It wasn't just in the synagogues. It was at banquets. It was in people's homes. He did the miraculous on the street and at a well. Even people like Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, writes of the miracles of Jesus. Pharisees credit Jesus and don't doubt for a moment of the miracles that he performed, as well as other unbelievers who spoke of them. In verse 23, Peter says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and his own foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. He wasn't a vic- just a victim. It was by God's foreordained plan. It was in God's control. It was with God's permission. It was with God's participation. It was with Jesus' own obedience and participation, but his contribution to what needed to be to fulfill God's plan. What it seemed like at the time was God was turning his back on Jesus. That if he was the Messiah, that God had left him to fend for himself in that darkness of that crucifixion day. It seemed that Jesus had left and abandoned the disciples. It seemed like Jesus owed them, if he was the son of God, much better protection if he was the king of the Jews. Jesus himself looks up to heaven saying, why? Why have you forsaken me? Why? What must it have looked like those days? It looked like Jesus was being denied of everything that he had said and that he'd proclaimed who he said he was. It looked like it was a big farce and a big lie. But he says there on the cross, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? It was all out of intentionality. Jesus is quoting David's Psalm 22. And it begins with that. And people in the crowd would have recognized what Jesus was saying when he said, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? He may have been bringing it up that they would go back and read it and see how full it is of the prophecies, of the truth of God, of what was happening right before them. King David was writing these words and these scriptures, these verses, about a thousand years, a thousand years in front of what Jesus was facing that day. David would be in a room in the palace and he'd pick out a song that's already written, that already has a tune. And he would write 
about his relationship with God. And he'd write, even revealing the relationship of Jesus Christ with his father and what was about to happen on earth. Not knowing the time frame, but a thousand years later. I want to share some more of those with you, some more of those prophetic psalms that detail Jesus' crucifixion, that details his hands and feet being pierced, that details how the people would cast lots for his clothing and how it ends. In Psalms twenty-two eighteen, there, it says, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. I love how this Psalm 22 ends. Verse 31 can you sh- yep, there we go. Verse 30 says, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. That's us. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. He has done it. He has done it, David writes. A thousand years earlier, he writes about you and I, how the unborn will have his righteousness proclaimed to him and how we will become the proclaimers. That's you and I. David's writing of a thousand years before Jesus does it. Maybe go take a look at it for yourself this afternoon and think about David writing that. But think about again on the cross, Jesus starting with that first verse with all the emotion of his heart saying, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Peter is preaching saying it's not what it seems. It actually absolutely is the fulfillment of God's intentional and purposeful plan. It's not a mistake. It's on purpose. It's the way it needs to be. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah's writing about 750 years before Christ. And Isaiah 53 is loaded with those details of the crucifixion. Things like, Jesus would be pierced for our sins, that he would be led like a lamb to slaughter, buried with a rich man in a tomb, that his body would not see decay, but it would be raised up because it is God's plan. No other occurrence on the face of the earth has been documented, has been prophesied with such detail, and has been performed with such immaculate attention because it had to be because it was for the forgiveness of our sins because Jesus would be our propitiation with such detail the women visited the tomb this morning on this Sunday morning and to go finish what had not been able to be finished on Friday and what couldn't be done on Saturday because of the Passover that was happening. They went back to finish the burial duties and the burial rites, their obligation and to express their love to Jesus and that tomb was open. But there was such detail as they walked in, they and others walked in later to see that the face cloth, the head covering is folded and left intentionally. The wrapped cloth and clothing is left there in the position like there was a body once inside of it, like you couldn't lay it other than having been a body in it who had left it because it was intentional for you and I. 
When an angel of the Lord says, why do you search for the living among the dead? I love that line. That's a great line. Why do you search for the living in the dead? In the land of the dead. Good line. Good line, God. But that kicks off a chain reaction that leads us up to these 50 days, and I want to look at it. It kicks off a chain reaction. Why are you looking for the living in the land of the dead? These appearances are happening. The women see Jesus for themselves that morning. And they have to go share. They can't stay quiet. Come look at the tomb yourself. You look at the cloth yourself. We haven't moved it. We haven't touched anything. Go, Go look for yourself. Not so they could collect or profit off of it because it's truth. When rumors are circulating, circulating as much as the coin or the dollar at the time because of a scam that's being created, they're wanting to proclaim the truth of what they've experienced. Jesus later appears to Peter himself, appears before him. But when Jesus, late that afternoon, appears to two others of the two other disciples on the road to Emmaus two others who were walking out of their town out of the town of Jerusalem to Emmaus I don't know if they lived there I don't know if they had a friend there I don't know if it was just for the bed or for the food or if they were still afraid or not I don't know but they're walking the road and they're recounting to themselves what just happened Thursday night Jesus washed their feet Friday he was arrested and he went through all of that and he gave his life and today the women are saying they've seen him and that the tomb's empty. Maybe we've seen for ourselves the folded cloth and the empty linens and someone joins them sharing scripture, walking along the road. And it says there in Luke 24, it says that he started back at Moses And he worked all the way through the prophets. I'm guessing he covered Psalms 22. Maybe Isaiah 53. And he brought him up to the very day of what had happened. And they have to just be shocked at what they'd heard. And they get to the village. They get to Emmaus. And Jesus, who they don't know yet, is just continuing to walk like he's going on, it says. Like he has somewhere else to be. And they beg him, no, no, it's it's getting late. It's evening. Come stay with us. Come join us. Stay with us tonight. And Jesus obliges. And he does that. He joins them. At home, which we're going to come back to. But later that night, after he had left them, he also appeared to all of the disciples in a room. Saying, peace be with you. And they thought they had saw a ghost, it says. They thought it was a ghost, and Jesus said, go ahead, touch me. We think of Thomas, and how dumb could you be, Thomas, to say you've got to be able to touch him. But Jesus knew right where each one of them were. When a week later he would encounter Thomas, Jesus is already saying, go ahead, touch me. Ghosts don't have flesh or bone. And they still didn't believe. And Jesus said, do you have any food to eat? Ghosts don't digest food too well. Do you have any food? And they picked a piece of broiled fish and shared it with him. Do you believe yet? Wow. Today, 
On this day, all those things are happening and Jesus is appearing. I want to pick up the story in verse 44, if you can put that on the screen, verse 44. In Luke chapter 24, he said to them, he's talking to the two disciples that he's gathered with, that he's gone to the village with, walking on the road, and he's joining them for the evening. He says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. Now wait, what? In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, Jesus is beginning to reveal himself to those two. In the next verse, he says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. In the next verse. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So when Peter is on the housetop and he's saying, you know of the miracles I'm speaking of. It's like this. It's like, can you even argue with yourself? You've seen for yourself, this is not normal. I know it seems this way, but it's not as it seems. As I mentioned a week later, Thomas has his encounter. He's with the disciples now, and Jesus appears in the room again. And Thomas had already said, I would have to see it to believe it. I'd have to touch it. I'd have to put my hand in his side. Go ahead. You're welcome to. Over the next 40 days, Jesus appears to more than 500 believers. To more than 500 other people, Jesus appears not as a ghost, but in his body form. But now he's even more like God than he was when he was in his pure earthly, born in a manger as a babe body. Jesus is not a ghost. He's in body, but he's the resurrected son of God. This leads us to these 50 days after crucifixion. When Peter stands up with the powerful message, the powerful message that he's sharing from the rooftop. And we know it's not as it seems. Peter is going to conclude his message in verse 36. I want to pull that verse out. And for a moment, it's a message to all of us. Just as it's a message to all of those gathered around the housetop, the crowd that's gathered, that may have not all been at the crucifixion, that may have not all been before Pontius Pilate, that may have not all been at the parade that had happened 10 days ago. But there they were standing these 50 days after crucifixion, Wondering what's going on? What's this rushing sound? Why are these men on a rooftop? And Peter has been standing up and sharing. But he's concluding with this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He's declaring to all of those gathered around the house. In that crowd, 
that has to be more than 3,000 people at this time, for reasons we'll see here in a moment, he's saying you have had a part. You had a part to play in his crucifixion. This Jesus whom you crucified. With each of them listening, listening to Peter, they begin to realize that they too have played a part. But even though you and I didn't make Jesus go to the cross, even though you and I weren't at the parade, even though you and I weren't before Pilate, even though you and I weren't at the crucifixion, we weren't there that Easter day, Peter has the same message, I believe, for each one of us. We played a part. Not because we forced him to go, because he chose to go because of your and I's sin, still 2,000 years later, that would occur and that would separate us from that same God, just like those people were separated, far off, out of touch, no matter if they were religious leaders, no matter if they were the governor, no matter if they were Caiaphas themselves, no matter what their duties were in the temple, they were all in need of a savior, and it was Jesus who said, I'm going, and I'm going to go to that cross for your sins, that each one of us have had a part. Have you ever had this thought? If God spoke the world into existence, couldn't he have spoken it out of existence? It wasn't that God was fed up. It was that God was in love. God wasn't fed up. God was in love. And he's in love with you. When he went to this cross 2,000 years ago, he went because he was in love with you, not because he's fed up with you. And he's not going to be fed up with you. He's going to continue to love you and to care for you. And he encourages us, every one of us in this room, to give ourselves for one another. To give ourselves up in love, not in an attitude of being fed up, of being frustrated, disappointed, being caught up in what it seems, but being convinced in the love that was given by that Jesus on the cross. In verse 37, the brothers are struck in the heart. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other disciples, brothers, what shall we do? I think it's a bit more like, what can we do? What's left? If we participated, if we were part of those who sent him to the cross, if I heard that sound like a rushing wind and came standing here before you on top of this rooftop and what you say is true, what can I do? What's left? And Peter says in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. But it begins with repentance. It begins with not something that's just intellectual, that just believes history happened this way. That doesn't just believe that Jesus was a real person or a real character. It's something, it says in scripture, they experienced something in their heart. There was something different that happened in their heart that day that changed the way they not just believed, 
but the way they lived, the way they saw life, the way that they would discontinue to believe that it seems one way and that's just the way that it is. But that they would allow God to have lordship in their life. That they would allow him to take their sins with the work that he had done on the cross. That they would give those and they would give up their lordship. The control of their own life. And they would let God begin leading them just as he was leading Peter who stood up that day. These men. How could they be trusted? How could what they're saying possibly be true? It's true because of years and years of prophecy, of details that did come forth and that did happen. They could be trusted and believed because many people, not just the 12 of them, saw Jesus' miracles. But their lives lived out and given up. Those men, you can look up all 12 of them, All 12 of them sold out their life for the resurrected Jesus Christ. They thought they had sold out their life when he was with them, when he was performing miracles, when he was teaching them, when he was giving them a wild trip across the ocean. But it was nothing like they would give the resurrected Jesus Christ from what they had experienced, what they had learned, and how he walked and lived amongst them. They gave themselves to him and to the truth that he held. Today, I want to encourage you before we take communion, as we get ready to take communion, two things. If you've never experienced something like that, like these people experienced in the following scriptures there, it says that 3,000 people repented and were baptized that day at the message that Peter gave from a rooftop surrounded by his friends and the disciples of Jesus Christ. The resurrected Jesus, 3,000 of them repented. And I would like to know, I wish, don't we all, how many thousands upon thousands upon thousands have done that today? You're not alone. And any of us who have done that in this room, we know what you might be thinking and how you might be feeling because we too have had that kind of encounter one day where we realize I've believed that Jesus was real. I've had a mental, I haven't denied him. I haven't done anything against him. I haven't really sent him to that cross. I didn't do it. And yet we've come to the place that I'm sharing about where we realize we have been a part of it and he did it willingly and lovingly for me. I'd encourage you to to begin that process, to pray with someone on the prayer team who's going to be available this morning. Maybe someone here that you know, to pray a prayer and to welcome Christ into your life and his lordship into your life. But maybe you've also heard me saying that it's not what it seems and there's circumstances in your own life that I have to remind myself often that is a message of Easter. There's many messages of Easter, but there's, that is a message that is not what it seems. And even as I live my life out and I think of my circumstances that I have to think it's not just what it seems. God's bigger than my circumstances. God's doing something in my life and it might be uncomfortable. I might not even know what to do, but it's not that God's lost. He's in control and he's working good love 
into my life. Good truth and love that leads somewhere, that is going somewhere. I might not know where I'm going, but God knows exactly where he's taken me, and I want to follow his lordship in my life. If you're thinking of some of those situations or circumstances in your life, I want to encourage you to pray with a prayer team member as well. We're going to take communion together. In this next song, would you stand with me? You're welcome to come up front and to grab. There's either juice or wine and a piece of bread and uh, make your way back to your seat. We're going to take communion together. So uh, if you would, stand with me and uh, begin receiving the elements. As it says in Luke 24, Jesus took them up on their offer. And he didn't continue on. He went to their home. And they said, it's, it's getting late in the evening. We, sh- we should eat. Let's, let's sit down at the table. In Luke 24, 30, it says, when he was with them at the table, he took the bread and he gave thanks. He broke it with those two disciples This evening, on Easter Sunday, he sat with them. After sharing from Moses through the prophets to that day, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. He may have said something like this, take and eat. This is my body. You can take the bread. In verse 31, it says, Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized Jesus. He disappeared from their sight. Then he appears to Peter, somewhere in the moment that they're running back to Jerusalem to go tell the disciples they too had seen Jesus, who the women saw, who the others saw that day, and who the disciples were about to see, but he broke bread with them. Maybe they paused to finish it even though Jesus had left them. In Matthew 26, it says, this happening on the Thursday night before he was betrayed, it says, Jesus took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of the sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When we drink the cup, we proclaim that day is coming as well. When we'll be drinking it with Jesus in his new kingdom, you can drink the cup. Luke 24, 35 says, the two, those two disciples told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the the bread. Jesus, we close our service today, each one of us in this room, I believe, grateful for your provision for us. Grateful that we to get to recognize you, that you opened our eyes and you call us saved. 
You call us the redeemed. You call us the royal priesthood who you gave your life for. God, we feel so treasured, so loved, so provided for and well taken care of by you. We rejoice. We declare and we want to continue to proclaim and share your story in our way, how you have led us on the way, how you've joined us in the walk and you've made all the difference. We want to be those who continue to share. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us and celebrating with us on Easter Sunday. We're so grateful. At my house, we're grateful to have family and friends on Easter. We're grateful to have you here. If you're new here at Mount Helena, we want to welcome you to stop by the Welcome Center and meet someone there. I would love to meet you this morning as well, but we have a welcome packet there. We'd love to get into your hands if you want more information about Mount Helena. We invite you next Sunday to a baptism Sunday where uh, we have a number of people who want to uh, publicly proclaim their faith through baptism. We welcome you to join us for that. The prayer team is also available here to the side of the stage if you would like prayer. Have a great day. Happy Easter.